Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Mirza Ghalib is one of the most celebrated poets in the Urdu literary canon. Yet at the time, Ghalib was prolific in both Urdu and Persian. His output in Persian dwarfs his Urdu writing, at least in its published form, and he often openly dismissed his Urdu works. Once writing... Look into the Persian, so that you may see paintings of myriad shades and hues. Pass by the collection in Urdu, for it is nothing but drawings and sketches. Ghalib, A Wilderness at My Doorstep, a critical biography by Professor Meher Afshan Faruqi, published earlier this year, explores the work of Mirza Ghalib to perhaps explain why he made the switch from Urdu to Persian and back again. Meher Afshan Faruqi is currently an associate professor of Urdu and South Asian literature at the University of Virginia. Her research publications address complex issues of Urdu literary culture, particularly in the context of modernity. A well-known translator, anthologist, and columnist, she is the editor of the pioneering two-volume work, The Oxford India Anthology of Modern Urdu Literature. More recently, she has published the acclaimed monograph, The Post-Colonial Mind. Urdu Culture, Islam, and Modernity in Muhammad Hassan Askar. Faruqi also writes a featured column on Urdu literature of the past and present in the dawn. Today, I'll ask Mehir to introduce us to Ghalib and his work. We'll explore Ghalib as both a poet and a person, and why he made the switch from writing in Urdu to Persian and back again. So, Mehir, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps it's best to start with the subject of the book, uh, Mirza Ghalib. Who was he, and what position does he hold in the Urdu and Persian literary canon? Hi, Gordon, and hello, everyone listening to this podcast. I'm very happy to be here today uh, to speak about my favorite subject and my favorite poet, Mirza Asadullah Khan Ghalib. So Ghalib was born in Agra, a city I'm sure everybody knows because of the Taj Mahal. He lived in Delhi for most of his adult life. He died in Delhi and he's buried in Delhi. But his ancestors were from Samarkand in Central Asia. So I would like to say that um, identity in those days was not something that we conceive of as today. 
um, you know, because of nationalism. Uh, in in Ghalib's time, identi- identities were more diffuse and uh, they, there were trans-regional affiliations of identity. So we find that Ghalib was writing both in Urdu and Persian, and he thought of himself as a person who straddled um, languages and who had uh, a composite view of literary culture. Is this adequate or should I go more <laughs> into depth about well, Ghalib? Well, this might actually go into like a uh, segue into my next question, which is how much do we know about about his life? Um, you know, his how he grew up, where he grew up, what his family was like. I, I know looking at, at his biography, he had, I think he was, he seems to have constantly been um, fighting about a pension left over from, mm-hmm. from one of his uh, older, older relatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a very good question. So we know fairly little about his early life. I mean, we know that he was born in Agra. We know that he had two siblings, an older sister and a younger brother. We also know that he lost his father when he was only five years old. His father was working for the Raja of Alwar, and um, he died in you know one of the encounters fighting. So most of Ghalib's ancestors were associated with the military. They offered military services to rulers. Um, Ghalib's maternal grandparents were in Agra, and that is where he grew up after his father, you know, I mean, even before that. So his maternal grandfather was a commander of uh, forces, and um, he was very well known in Agra. So, he, so Ghalib's childhood was spent in um, pretty much very comfortable circumstances. Uh, and after the death of his father, he went under the formal uh, guardianship of his uncle, who was, again, a very important uh, officer. In fact, his uncle was associated with Lord Lake, who was uh, the governor of the United Provinces at that time. And um, Ghalib's uncle died suddenly when Ghalib was only nine years old. Uh, He fell from his elephant and he sustained uh, injuries. So poor Ghalib had... um, this early setback when he lost his father and his uncle, but he was married, as was the custom, at the age of 13, into, again, a very important uh, family related to him through his uncle's connections. Um, And uh, uh, after his marriage, a few years after he got married, he moved to Delhi. Because by then he had started writing poetry. I believe he started writing poetry by the age of 10. And um, so by the age of 15 or so, he already had composed enough to make him an important poet. And it was important for him also to move to Delhi because that was the happenings place compared to Agra. Um, now, we know much more about Ghalib's uh, life from his, from the middle period onwards, let's say from 1826 onwards, which is which makes him about 28 or 29 years old. And that's when he made this journey to Calcutta. Um, maybe going back a little bit, um, when his uncle died, 
he left behind a sizable amount of property which had to be divided amongst his heirs and Ghalib and his brother were among them. So there was a settlement of a stipend uh, that was made, but that wasn't very satisfactory uh, because it the share that Ghalib and his brother got was not representative of the position of the relationship that, you know, the close, they were the next of kin almost. Um, anyways, so Ghalib went to Calcutta to get his pension uh, increased or revised Um and it was a very long journey that he undertook, almost 3,000 kilometers. So during the journey, he wrote a lot, both poetry and letters. He wrote a lot of letters to friends back home throughout the journey and once he was in Calcutta. But these letters were written in Persian, uh, although they have been translated recently, but for a long time because Persian learning wasn't as... Um, popular as it used to be in Ghalib's times. People did not read those letters as carefully as they should have. Uh, nonetheless, now they are available in Urdu. But then there is a whole bunch of letters that he wrote in Urdu in late in life. And uh, those letters are actually run into four volumes. So there's a lot that we know about his later life from his letters. Um, we know his struggles for pension. We know that he was in debt to the money lenders. We know that he lost every single child that was born to them, seven children, none survived beyond the age of two years. Um, we know that he had rivalries with his peers for important positions. So we know a whole lot about his life from the middle period onwards. And maybe you can just quickly share, what are some of the literary forms that, that, that Ghalib is most known for and is most respected for um, as part of the, the Urdu canon? Yes. So Ghalib started his career as a poet in Urdu, and um, he's primarily known as a ghazal poet. Now, a ghazal, uh, for, just to give you a better sense of what this kind of genre is all about, it's a poem that consists of two line verses. And every verse is, every two line verse is complete in the sense that the thought is complete, the idea is complete. And the verses are linked together by an, an elaborate system of meter and rhyme and rhyming word. So you see, it's a very complicated. Um, form of poetry to write because your thought has to be complete in two lines and plus you have to adhere to the to the end rhyme and uh, also the rhyming word and Ghalib excelled in the in the ghazal but he also wrote other forms of poetry um, he was very good at writing uh, masnavis and masnavi means a long narrative poem it is usually has a subject and um, it can run into several hundred verses and you can change uh, the tone and rhythm of the poem in, in the different sections. Um, it's a very important classical genre. He also wrote some very important uh, odes, which are known as qasidas. And these, of course, were uh, pretty common in those days because you had to write these qasidas for your patron, you know, singing their praises. But Ghalib managed to bring 
a lot of literary content to the Qasida as well. I mean, his genius shines even in, uh, in the kind of poetry that we know has a specific purpose. Ghalib also wrote uh, quatrains, that is, Rubais, and these are four-line verses. Um, he wrote Rubais both on casual subjects and on uh, sometimes on very serious um, subjects. So all of this goes to show that he was pretty much a master of poetry and versification, at least uh, both in Urdu and in Persian. Um, In Persian, he wrote more in the classical style because Persian being a classical language and Urdu being a modern language, you see that that's a very important difference between the two. And this is something that I also explore in my book. Uh, the classicism of Persian, and how Ghalib, although, you know, it's the same mind, it's the same person, and it's the same uh, kind of abstractions that he follows in both, but he's more of a classicist uh, in Persian than in Urdu. In Urdu, he's more experimental and more bold, if I can say so. Um, he he does that. He He sort of is more comfortable perhaps in doing things with language in Urdu, whereas in Persian, he's more careful about being grammatically correct, about being um, current in his Persian usage and so on. Um, so we find, we, I would say that his greatness rests in his ghazal poetry in Urdu and in his narrative poems, that is his Masnavis in Persian. It's interesting you note that he. I guess seems more. I, I'm I'm going to use the word relaxed, thus more mm-hmm. experimental, more creative in Urdu, because mm-hmm. if you kind of read through the biography, um, when it comes to Persian, Ghalib is quite keen to make sure that that everyone knows that that he's using Persian correctly and that mm-hmm. everyone else is using Persian incorrectly. Yes, and um, I think you note he says, "I have this tutor that everyone is seems to be pretty convinced doesn't actually exist." Right. Um, so I, I wonder if you if you could go a bit into get into bit into kind of um, yeah. his 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 relationship with the Persian yeah. language and and I yeah. guess his his works in Persian. Yeah, this is really a question after my heart. It's very interesting to to see his relationship with Persian and his relationship with Urdu. So um, you know, Persian was the language of the state and. The Mughals actually made it the language of the state in the sense that they patronized Persian a lot. I mean, they did patronize the regional languages, but they opened up their court to poets from Iran and Central Asia. And because the Mughals were one of the richest dynasties of those times, in fact, uh, I would say all time, uh, so poets, there was a lot of people coming from, uh, uh, not just poets, but also important uh, writers and prose stylists from Iran coming and settling down at the Mughal court. And they kept the tradition, not just the tradition, but also the language current, because it was always fresh blood coming, right? Now, by the time we get to the early 19th century, the all of that had changed because we have um, the East India Company at that time. Later on, India passed under uh, Queen Victoria in, after 1857. But till then, then it was just the 
you know, the British colonizers were there. And um, they, they did appreciate Persian, and Persian continued as the official language in 1837. But certainly uh, there was a decline in Persian learning, and uh, the new language, Urdu, which, which had been born uh, basically of a mixture between or an interaction between the Persian speakers and the local language, especially of the region around Delhi, that language had now developed so much so that it was it had become the language of poetry. And uh, it, it was becoming the favored language. So Ghalib wanted to show his dominance in the classical genre as well. And he wanted to make it very clear to all his peers that his Persian was not the stultified uh, frozen Persian of his peers, but that he was very much in touch with the current usages in Iran. And to do that, he possibly made up, although I'm not very sure, I think it is possible that there was this person, Abdul Samad, uh, who was originally, I think, a Jew from Iran who had converted to uh, Islam and he was traveling through India and he came to Agra and Ghalib invited him to his house and he stayed for two years and he taught Ghalib, um, well, he he was Ghalib's Persian language tutor. So Ghalib did not have an official ustad, which is the traditional way of learning poetry, is that you are kind of an apprentice to a senior poet who corrects your uh, poetry uh, or polishes your poetry. Ghalib didn't have an ustad, but he did He did claim to have this tutor. Um, and he got into big arguments and fights, in fact, uh, to the extent that he had to go to court. Uh, because he was very offended and when anybody criticized his um, uh, grammatical use of Persian or his choice of certain, you know, Alexis, Lexis. Um, this this part is um, is pretty fascinating uh, to me, and I, I'm sure it is to you also. Why this uh, this preference for Persian when he was so good in Urdu? And I think it has to do with Ghalib's perception of Persians' reach beyond the borders of India, South Asia, whatever you want to call it. He felt that Persian had a wider reach and um, he wanted to be connected to a deeper tradition. And so he spent at least 20 years of his life just writing in Persian and pretty much I think, enjoying it and then returning to Urdu much later in his life. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And and how does this how does this wish to kind of I guess engage with a more transnational understanding of literature? How does that relate to his relations with the British? Hmm, that's an interesting question. So from the very beginning Ghalib was very I would say he had a modern mind and when I say modern mind, it means that he was open to asking questions and not accepting things just as they were. So he was very receptive of change and he wanted to go along with change. In fact, throughout his career, we noticed that he was always going after uh, originality more than just following tradition, which can seem a little bit contradictory at times. But I mean, you know, I mean, all of us have contradictions in our uh, personal preferences. And so did Ghalib. Um, he, he felt that um, since Persian was the classical mode, he composed these qasidas and odes in Persian mostly. And um, he was, uh, he wrote many of these qasidas for important officials uh, such as Andrew Sterling. He wrote a wonderful qasida for Andrew Sterling, who was the officer in Calcutta. He even wrote a qasida for Queen Victoria, which was sent. It was bound in leather and gold. And Queen Victoria accepted it and actually wrote a letter of acknowledgement. But it didn't. He, she didn't follow up by giving him a stipend. You see, so in this aspect, he was uh, sort of traditional too, because he expected patronage from the British, just as uh, was the tradition for poets because poets were full-time poets, right? They were not following other professions and writing poetry in their spare time. So he wanted to be, he wanted patronage and he uh, expected it from the British. The other thing that I notice about him is that he took to print um, when he went to Calcutta and he saw that um, there were bookshops that were well lit up and um, glittering, um, and the newspapers were publishing his his poetry, he realized that this was a medium through which he could reach a much wider audience. So once again, we have to see the importance of poetry in the literary culture. Now, the way poetry was disseminated was mostly through the system of mushairas, that are that you know you can call them poetry slams, but they were more um, they were more uh, formal than that. So a mushaira was a gathering in which there were poets who recited their poetry, and at the same time there was an audience also who was there to appreciate the poetry as as it was recited and make and take notes in their notebooks, and that's how the poetry got disseminated to a general audience. Uh, of course, there were uh, the poems were once they were collected together and constituted a divan. 
which is again a very interesting concept and i'm sure uh, people who are listening to this podcast would like to know what is the difference between a divan and an anthology for instance so an anthology is a collection of poems and that is the word for that is majmua that means collection and people generally do that collection on a temporal basis like the oldest comes first and you know you or it you could do it the other way around um and you know poems are dated but a divan is a very interesting um, form of organizing poetry and it is almost like a dictionary of poetry it's because it's organized in alphabetical order not only that a poet who has a divan has shown his capability to write poems ending with every single letter of the alphabet so for example the alphabet begins with alif right like a and ends with ye which is y um you have to compose poems whose end uh, rhymes you know the um, the refrain ends with one of those uh, letters of the alphabet so you go from alif ba te se and you know you you try to do your best of course there are some letters that are just impossible to um use in this order but once you have accomplished let's say 90% of that then you are a poet poet who is known as a sahibe divan that means a poet who has excelled so um ghalib was um a sahibe divan in this regard and uh he uh, took pride in this in this accomplishment but he realized that these divans had a limited circulation they were meant for consumption only by the elite so a uh, divan was calligraphed in beautiful lettering by an expert calligrapher most probably paid by the patron of the poet or who wanted a copy of the divan so people paid for a copy to be made but at the most i would think how many copies possibly could be made of one divan maybe 20 maybe if the poet was extremely popular maybe 30 but once you were available in print for example the first divan of ghalib that was printed was in 1841 and i am just guessing because we don't know what was the print run but i'm guessing it was around 200 and 250 so um or, and then in ghalib's lifetime his urdu divan went into five print editions and each one bigger than the previous one so uh in this way he his embracing of print made his work available to a wider audience and also catered to this idea of possessing i mean who owns the poetry who does it belong to literally and if if i have bought a divan ghalib and placed it in my library and i'm displaying it i'm taking a certain pride in showing my appreciation of literature so all of these interesting questions i go into in my book uh because these questions were very fascinating for me this transition from manuscript to print culture and who were the who were the readers you know what was the literacy level in ghalib's time probably um it was only for the elite but again you see there was a huge audience of people who gathered around a reader so you could i could be a reader of ghalib and i could open his divan and i could recite the poems and i would have like 10 or 15 people listening to me so this was another way in which 
uh, oral and written reception of poetry went hand in hand. All these things are, I feel, have not been really looked into by uh, the extremely important scholars who have gone before me and worked on Ghalib. Because let me tell you, when I started to work on Ghalib, I was a little apprehensive since uh, Ghalib's bibliography, that means the people who have produced work on Ghalib, actually runs into 400 pages. So there have been so much work on Ghalib. And what on earth was I going to do? But I was very fortunate that I started looking at Ghalib's manuscripts first. And then I realized that, oh, look at this. Ghalib was such an astute editor of his own work because he didn't, when he published his first Divan, he cut literally cut his, his corpus of poems into half. So he rejected almost half his poetry. When I use the word rejected, I use in, it in quotes because he didn't disown that poetry. It's just that he didn't publish it. So it was discovered much later because people forgot about that poetry. Uh, since it wasn't available in print, it was only in manuscript form. So, you know, this brings out the distinction between manuscript and print culture very well. Um, the, the manuscript known as the Nusra Hamidia was discovered in Bhopal um, in, uh, I want to say, 1918. That's some 50 years after Ghalib's death. Ghalib died in 1869. So um, people were surprised that there's so much more to Ghalib than what we have in the published Diwan. So this is my starting point uh, in my book. Um, and then I, I, I was interested in the other manuscript Diwans, and I found that they were all you know, they were all kind of snapshots of Ghalib's creativity in the years that they were compiled. So the very first one is, eight, is in 1816, and that is in Ghalib's own handwriting. And so it gives us a snapshot of when Ghalib was 19 years old, he already had a complete divan. He was already an accomplished poet. The second one is in 1821, and the third one is in 1826. Then we have another one in 18. 28 and so on and so forth. So I have, I found and I accessed all of these handwritten manuscripts and I looked at the process of selection. So in fact, you know, I was trying to get into Ghalib's mind, literally trying to think with him, why did he choose this verse or this poem and not this one? Sometimes I found an answer pretty quickly because, you know, I felt that this poem was better than the other that poem or this poem was less obscure, less ambiguous. Um, but sometimes I was puzzled because I just couldn't see why he excluded or unselected a particular verse. I can go on on this for a long time, so I think I'll stop here and take your next question. Well, I think I think I have I have one more question, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'd like to return to um to Ghalib the as a person, as opposed to maybe as as a poet, you know, one thing that 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 really strikes me in reading um, your biography um, is that uh, Galib is, or, or yeah, he, he seems very much of like a, a a character. You know, he's he has he has very strong opinions of himself. He's constantly getting into feuds with other people. Um, he likes to gamble. Uh, he's he's um, you know, you know, he's 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 constantly in in financial trouble, um, and I guess you know it, it it in some ways for for it, it makes him seem like uh, 
a real person, which I think sometimes as you as you think about kind of these very grand and important literary figures, um, you know, in, in whatever culture you're dealing with, I think we sometimes forget that these were that 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 these were real people with with uh, real lives and real problems and real flaws and and real qualities. So I guess maybe in, in, in kind of working on this biography of Golub, I guess how much how much of his personality did you glean from um, from your studies for for this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot about Ghalib. I even learned what were his favorite foods, what was what kind of clothing he liked, <laughs> what times he got up and went to sleep. I learned a lot about him. But two of the things that I would like to share with with you are that a he was very confident of his genius. But at the same time, he was very sensitive to criticism. Since his poetry was different in the in the sense that it's he he tended to sort of enjoy abstractions, and he was, as I said earlier, he he had a very modern mind, so he liked to ask questions and or put question marks in front of accepted values. So this was one thing that he did. Secondly, he was very witty. He was a great conversationalist, and he was a very warm and affectionate person in his real life because he had so many friends also who supported him. So while he was very feisty, at the same time, he had a lot of friends, and he was very fond of his younger brother. His younger brother's name was Mirza Yusuf, who was four years younger than him. And when Ghalib was uh, traveling to Calcutta, a little bit before that, Ghalib's um, younger brother... Uh, you know, he, he became um, schizophrenic. He became, he lost his sanity. So he had to be confined in his house, in, in the house that he lived. I mean, Mirza Yusuf lived not very far from Ghalib. And he was killed during the 1857, um, you know, the first uh, re- rebellion uh, by the British soldiers. Uh, because I think, you know, when they were doing house-to-house searches, uh, Mirza Yusuf came out without, you know, he was, he was, he wasn't in his senses. Anyways, um, so Ghalib was a good friend to friends, but above all, his genius was ex- exceptional. Uh, he could write poems on demand. He could, when he became the tutor to Bahadur Shah Zafar, there's lots of. Uh, uh, you know, very interesting back and forth between him and the Mughal emperor when he's walking with Bahadur Shah Zafar in the royal gardens and he's looking at the mangoes and he says, oh, you know, I like mangoes. And the emperor immediately sends him a basket full of mangoes. Um, and, you know, he, he he responds in poems to the gifts that he receives. Overall, I would say... Um, He is arrogant because I guess that was an accepted uh, characteristic of an important poet. You wanted to stand out from a crowd of uh, your fellow poets. And one way of doing it was to say repeatedly that you are your poetry, why are you writing poetry? You're writing poetry so that it transcends time, so that your name lasts. 
much, much after you are gone. And that is the kind of fame that he achieved. He has achieved everlasting fame in Urdu. And despite the fact that his Urdu verse is not a whole lot, it's just a small, slim volume, the Divane Ghalib, because he was so particular in editing it. But now we do have the poems that he did not include. So we do have a comprehensive uh, volume of his poetry. But to be honest, nobody reads the verses that he did not include. Um, a few of them have become famous. But by and large, it is that slim volume that we know as Divane Ghalib that has stood the test of time. And um, Ghalib is quoted, I think he's the most quoted poet. Um, people quote him right or wrong. <laughs> but his poetry has this amazing, amazing quality of touching on subtle uh, issues and subtle, um, I, I would say, recesses of the mind, uh, relationships that, you know, the, those things are timeless. So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Meher Afshan Farooqi, author of Ghalib, A Wilderness at My Doorstep, a critical biography. One actual last question. Uh, Meher, what's next for you and where can people find your work? Oh, this is a good question for me. So uh, I was, uh, when I was working on Ghalib, I began by looking at the poetry that he had rejected. And then I began to ask all these questions. So it, it so happened that I moved on from focusing on the rejected verses to the, the question of his bilingualism and the fact that he wrote more in Persian than he did in Urdu. And as you pointed out in, you know, in my introduction, that's one of the things that fascinated me more. So after I finished this book, I, I'm back to my rejected verses uh, thing. And so my second book, which is actually uh, in the works and will be out next year, is called Ghalib, A Burnt Treasure. And that focuses totally on, his, on the verses that he didn't include. And I make the argument uh, so I have selected about 40 poems from uh, his 200-odd um, poems that he rejected. Because the, the way he, he did this was that he didn't... Sometimes, he, of course, he rejected the entire poem. But very often what he did was that he plucked a few verses and he left the others. So then I have to... You know, I've made this argument as to um, why he chose the, this and not that from a particular poem. And then I've also studied the order of ordering of verses in the Ghazal. So my next book is going to be on this. And then I have another book that I'm actually editing, which is called Best Stories from Urdu. And uh, that's just a fun project that I'm doing. Um, my publishers are Penguin Random House. Uh, they did a very good job with my, with my Ghalib book. And I'm very happy with them. So most probably you will see my other books coming out from Penguin Random House. Well, I look forward to, to hearing more about them. Uh, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. 
and you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We owe you for subscribing to listening to the Asian Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with M.A. Burrell, author of We Served the People, My Mother's Stories. But before then, thank you so much, Meher, for joining me today. Thank you, Nick. And if I may add, I'm also on Twitter at Faruqi Meher. So please follow me on Twitter as well. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.